We are in Ezekiel chapter 16. We have been for some time, actually. Uh, I believe this is, the, this is either the fifth or sixth sermon in the 16th chapter of Ezekiel. We'll be starting at uh, verse 53. Um, well, actually, verse 52. Let me revise that. Verse 52 is where we'll uh, be starting. And so I'm going to read it to you. And then we'll begin to uh, explore it together. We've got it here for the, just for the initial reading. Okay, cool. And so, hear God's words to Ezekiel, which are words intended for the city of Jerusalem and for the judgment that she will soon bear. And they are also words for us to the extent that we can learn from them about ourselves and our God. Hear those words now. Bear your disgrace, you also, that's Jerusalem, for you've intervened on behalf of your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. These are the sisters to whom the Lord refers. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace, and be ashamed at all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state. Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state. You and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride? Before your wickedness was uncovered. Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria, all those around her, for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, I will deal with you as you have done, who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet... I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord, that you may remember And be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Indeed, this is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. So this is the moment we've been waiting for, right? The end of chapter 16. To refresh your memory, to catch you up on what has happened, Israel has failed in the most extravagant sort of way. And the last couple of sermons have been bringing out the earlier part of chapter 16 where God essentially takes the two worst groups of people they can think of or, or two of the worst groups among the sort of, the, the sort of worst sorts of people. And, and the Lord says, you have been worse than them. And you think you're better than them because you're, you're my special people, but in reality, you've been so much worse than them. They can look at you and be embarrassed for you since you apparently refuse to be embarrassed for you. Israel has failed. They have suffered and they will suffer judgment. 
At the end of our text, the Lord looks forward, though, to a, to a day when they will be brought back as new as, and as renewed people. Remember what's happened is that God is telling Jerusalem that exile is coming in the worst sort of way and Jerusalem doesn't believe him, even though it's perfectly consistent with what he promised them would happen if they rebelled against him, which they have done. And so they're refusing to believe that exile is coming. God is saying it is coming. You will suffer judgment for essentially for a violation of the third commandment, for taking my name as my people and dragging it through the mud and the blood, if you remember the first part of chapter 16. This is then a shift in chapter 16 from law to gospel, you might say, where God brings the, the, the law, that is the condemning voice of judgment against sin. At the end of 16, he brings this word of atonement and gospel and deliverance in a new covenant for his people. Three things I want you to notice, at least three things I want you to notice from this text this morning that we're going to look at. Number one, God restores by shame. That is, uses shame to restore. It's kind of odd. God restores by shaming. God rescues by remembering. And God redeems by himself. Okay? So he restores by shaming. He rescues by remembering. He redeems by himself. First of all, he restores by Shaming. Look at verse uh, 52, where God tells them to bear their disgrace. And then verse 53, he says, I will restore your fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom, her daughters, fortunes of Samaria, her daughters, and I'll restore your own fortunes in their midst. Remember from our last passage that God had addressed them and said, you're worse off than them. Okay, but they're going to be restored and you are going to be restored as well. And so to, to go back briefly, I've, I've mentioned uh, a, a number of times as we've been looking at Ezekiel, what we're seeing are the judgments and the curses of the covenant that Israel entered into in the Old Testament, earlier in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1, after the Lord is detailed, if you rebel against me, you will go into exile, verse 1 of Deut- Deuteronomy 30, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations, sounds like you remember, which will be important later, you remember them in the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. Exact same language. Restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where he has scattered you. So this restoration, this restoring of your fortunes was promised back in Deuteronomy 30. The the Hebrew is, is literally, I will bring back the captives of your captivity. What's the purpose of the restoration? This this restoring of God's people. We'll look at verse 54. That you may bear your disgrace. Now that's rather unexpected, isn't it? Like your promises of restoration. It, it's, it's, I would hear that as it's all going to be okay. Now you're miserable. Now you're suffering. Now you're under the hand of judgment. But then eventually it's going to be all right. But he says, no, you're going to be restored. Why? What's the purpose of being restored? So that you can bear your disgrace. Now, what have we seen in this chapter? It's that Israel is not ashamed. 
They've committed extravagant idolatry against God and they don't care. There's, there's, a, there's an absence of shame where there should be shame. And this is why throughout history, one of the greatest failures of the people of God has been not to be ashamed when there's something they ought to be ashamed about. And our cultural moment, interestingly enough, is one that is both strongly anti-shame, right? You shouldn't shame people. You shouldn't judge people. And strongly in favor of shaming, depending on which group you belong to or which sort of category of people you are or who you offend, or that sort of thing. It's a reminder that every society, whether or not they acknowledge the Lord, every society has blasphemy laws. Right? Every society has things you can't say. And so here's the dirty secret about shame. Everyone believes, everyone believes, you believe, I believe this, and your, your unchristian neighbors, wherever they may be, believe this as well. And that is, you ought to be ashamed of shameful things. Everyone believes that. You ought to be ashamed of shameful things. So Christians ought to be the last ones who, we should, we should never be saying, oh, people should never be ashamed of things. Well, it depends. If they're shameful, then they really ought to be. Christians are the ones who say, you should only be ashamed when you've actually done something shameful. This is important because in our flesh, there's this tendency, again, it's in you, it's in me, that whenever we have done something shameful and we know it, we flee just like Adam and Eve. We try to hide because we don't want to feel ashamed. It's not fun, right? Feeling ashamed, feeling guilty is not fun. That's why some people are opposed to the entire concept of what we call church discipline, which is a rather insufficient term, uh, you know, I, that's what we've always called it. I'm, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm reaching for a better term. The best I've got so far is soul care, uh, care for the soul, uh, which is kind of what church discipline's about. So it, the, the idea is, is that nobody in their spiritual life coasts uphill, right? You don't, you don't, you don't grow in grace and, and, and uh, the grace and knowledge of Jesus by just sitting back and, and then it just kind of happens. I mean, sanctification feels like a kind of death, right? Putting to death the old man, seeing the Lord raise the new man to life. And so when it comes to things like church discipline or confrontation for sin, right? That there's sin in the camp, so to speak, and we have to go confront it. If, if you want to know more about that, uh, Galatians 6 would be a great place to start. Brothers, if anyone among you is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. Right? So there's the command to confrontation. I don't know about you, though, but it's really hard to confront people. Right? Even with the best of intentions and the best of motives. If, if we know there's something sinful or shameful in the camp or in our families or in our friendships, it's hard to sit somebody down and say, can we talk about this? Let me revise that just a second, though. Because it's not that we don't like confronting people. We don't, we don't like the thought of confronting people. Think about it this way. If confrontation means addressing sin honestly, then I think we do that all the time. Everybody believes in confrontation then. You either do it in righteousness, which is when you sit down with the person face to face with the hope of restoring them, or you do it in selfishness and cowardice uh, in private or with somebody who's not related to the problem at all. We call that gossip. Right? So you're still confronting the problem, it's just that the person's not in the room. <laughs> and that's, that's gossip. 
In fact, it was Israel's supposed righteousness, right? And the fact they think they're better than Sodom and Samaria and all of our neighbors that exposed the depth of their sin. Their arrogance was their biggest indictment. That's the point, right? Their arrogance was their biggest indictment. And so, so it's God's purpose here that His people rightly feel shame for that which is shameful. It's like their shame muscle was, was broken or, or not working. And, and God means to wake it up. Second purpose, that they would be comforted. Verse 54, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you've done, becoming a consolation to them who? Sodom and Samaria. Now, if Israel's ashamed, if Israel takes ownership of her sin, how does, that, how, does, how does that console Sodom and Samaria? It's not immediately obvious. What is being said here is that Sodom and Samaria are going to see all of your sins. Right? When you come back to me and you, and you start Israel, you start talking about my laws and my ways and, and your neighbors are hearing about it and they realize when, when they see you come back to, to, to home base, they see you come back to, to the love and promises and covenant of Yahweh, they realize how far you strayed. Just how awful it was. And they're going to say, wow, we are not as bad as all that, y'all. And if God can redeem, if, if Yahweh can redeem and rescue them, I think He can rescue and redeem us too. God will use His people. Here's, here's, here's kind of the principle there. God will always use His people to reveal Himself to be good. Where His people are virtuous and engage themselves in charity and love of neighbor and, and hospitality to the stranger, God will be exalted. And where they fail and they sin, God will redeem them, use them in spite of their sin, expose their sin, and God will be exalted. So if you see Christians being failures, take heart, there's hope for you too. It's really good news. Now that's not making light of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a very serious thing. If you've been paying attention in chapter 16, or oh, I don't know, the last 16 chapters at all, you know hypocrisy is a very serious thing. It's condemned over and over and over again just in the first 16 chapters here. And so all of us who are Christians and who are believers in Jesus must take this very seriously. Another way the Bible puts it is God is not mocked. Which is just its own, right? It's its own mind-bending way of talking about thinking you get away with sin is like an attempt to make fun of God. Right? The God who sees everything. And we sin and we think He doesn't see. Or we act like, we live like He doesn't see. Israel's failures were meant to bring them then, bring them appropriate, an appropriate amount of shame, and bring their unbelieving neighbors an appropriate amount of hope. So in summary, so far, God will restore. He, he promised that. Verse 53, I will restore their fortunes. Okay? Both Sodom, Samaria, and yours. Okay? Number two, God will humble them that you may bear your disgrace. And this is very important. The punishment of Israel fits their crime. It's very easy for us to read judgment texts and say, wow, God sounds really angry. Like, kind of uh, 
sort of fly off the handle, unpredictable angry. No, no, this is, this is a very measured response to, to that which is threatening and killing what God loves. So, so idolatry and sin is threatening and killing God's people. It's being done by God's people. And here's something you have in common with God. When something hurts, threatens, and kills that which you love, you get really angry. So that's something, that's, that's, that's what we call a communicable attribute of God, to use a theological term. An attribute of God that God has that we can understand because we're created in his, in his image and He gave us a little bit of it. And so what did they do? Verses 58 and 59. Oh, sorry, I skipped over verse 55, 56, 57, which is a, it's a restatement of what we've read so far. As for your sister Sodom and her daughters, they'll return to their former state. That's that restoration. Samaria and hers to their former state, you to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth, right? The one you used to make fun of, the one you used to mock, and now you're so much worse. Before your wickedness was uncovered, now you've become the object of reproach. Verse 58, you bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations. Verse 59, I will deal with you as you have done, right? The punishment fits the crime. They violated the covenant they had made with God. He gave them, remember the first part of chapter 16 in this parable, He gave them everything, including life itself. He showered them then with blessing upon blessing, made them more prosperous than any other nation, and they became consumed in their own pride, dare we say it, by their own sense of entitlement. And by their willingness as well to make peace with the pagan nations around them because it benefited them. Right? So you have a sense of entitlement, right? Uh, uh, we're not going to get in trouble because we're, we're special. But then you also have this sin against God that, that they ran to foreign powers and, and trusted in princes to secure them, right? And Christianity uh, teaches, again, that this is, these remain temptations for, for God's people. Very briefly, just to tie up this first point, God teaches us three things. Christianity teaches us three things about pain and suffering and its relationship to judgment very quickly. Number one, your sufferings are always less than your sins. Okay? Let me say that again. Your, your suffering, you do endure a measure of suffering in this life. Christian. Right? So, so please don't believe that if you were to become a Christian, you wouldn't endure any suffering. That's rather silly. Right? Your Savior carried a cross, and then you're going to spend the rest of your life following a cross-bearing Savior. There's going to be some suffering. The promise you're given is that your suffering is always smaller than your sin. So it was with Israel. Second, sometimes sin and suffering are connected. Okay? Sometimes they are. Sometimes... Uh, as we might say, you, you bring certain kinds of suffering on yourself by your own sin. That's what Ezekiel's saying. That's what a lot of the prophets said about God's people. Right? It's, it's, it's you did this and these are the consequences for sin. Sometimes they have no connection at all. That's the book of Job. Right? Job endures suffering not because of his sin. It's the blind man in John 9 that Jesus heals, right? Was it because of this man's sin or his parents' sin that he's born blind? Neither. Right? But that the, that the glory of God might be revealed in him. So, so one, your sufferings are always smaller than your sin. Two, sometimes sin and suffering are connected. But 
not, and sometimes they're not, and, and the, the, the arrogance comes in, in proclaiming that you have that all figured out. That was Job's friends, by the way. Third, under the lordship of Jesus, now there's no such thing as purposeless hurt. That is, number one, there's no such thing as pain that God doesn't take and redeem for some ultimate purpose, which maybe you'll be dead before you know what that purpose is, okay? That's part of the faith we confess. But perhaps more importantly, if you're walking through some difficulty right now, God does not wound us for sport, okay? So, so the hurt that you carry is not because God is like bored, and needs some entertainment or amusement. That's what you should see in Ezekiel, that their, that their punishment is, it, it comports with their crime. So, okay, so the first thing has to do with that element of God using their restoration to make them aware of their shame. Second, God rescues by remembering. Look at verse uh, 60. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. That's referring back to the start of chapter 16. I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. God rescues His people by remembering. Now, you've probably noticed in Ezekiel, God keeps saying, you guys forgot what I told you. You forgot what I told you. You forgot my covenant. You forgot my love. You forgot my grace and my gifts and my benefits. And then (laughs) don't let it get by you that He says, yet then I will remember. Because clearly you can't. (laughs) Right? So, so what does remember mean, right? We've talked about this before. I'm going to go over it again briefly. It does not mean, oh, I just forgot and now I remember. Like, it's not, I forgot where I put my keys. Does anyone remember? Right? I forgot where my shoes are. Does anyone remember? Not that kind of remembering and forgetting. How do I know that? Well, because God remembers and it's not because He forgot in that sense. Right? God says He remembers and it's not because He forgot. Now, Scripture does say, just, just kind of going to do a little kind of sidebar, side note here. Scripture does say that He forgets our sins. I hope that it's obvious to you that's a metaphorical way of speaking. If you've ever really sinned against someone, really, I mean really hurt someone, really failed someone, do you not, do you not want anything more than for them to forget it? Right? To, to live and exist as though it never happened. And that for your relationship to continue as though they had a very short-term memory when it comes to your sins, right? The Lord answers that longing in your heart and says, that's what I mean when I say your sins are forgiven. So what does remembering mean? It means in, in, in Scripture, when God says remember, and at this table when our Lord Jesus says remember, What it means is us returning to what God has said. In other words, it means reformation. That's probably a good way to remember it. When God says, remember, you think, be reformed. Okay, that's a little self-congratulatory maybe. Hoping for for a warmer response there. You guys are a little cold this morning. It's okay. Remember that word reformation, okay? The the idea in the Reformation, one of the one sort of the sort of battle cry of the Reformation, semper reformanda, always reforming. What does that mean? It means we're always going back to what God has said. Right? So the call to remember is a call to reform. Going back to what God has said in His Word, and then we're saying, okay, no matter what this Word says, no matter what it says, what we're going to do with it is affirm it. Accept it, rejoice in it, delight in it, submit to it, and say amen. 
no matter what it says. And if you do that, you will come to places in the Bible where your reaction will be, I almost forgot that was in there. Right? Oh, that's in there, right? Certainly the way I am living might suggest that I have forgotten it. And so, you remember. You, you reform. That's what it means to, to, to reform. You, you return to the formation that God means to form you into, means for you to be. That's, that's, that's reformation. Okay? And so how does, how does God answer this? He says, I will remember my covenant with you because clearly you fail to remember. In the days of your youth, I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways. So for us to remember and know who God is, God Himself must act first. You will be ashamed. There it is again. When you take your sisters, both elder and younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Earlier I said that remembering means coming back to what God has said. Again, how do I know that? Because that is what God Himself means when He says that He remembers. He returns to the covenant He has made. That is the promise that they are His. That's what He returns to. That that He will not be mocked. That His promises will not be mocked. And also that His people will not be utterly ruined. He will always... Come and redeem those who repent. But then he tells Ezekiel something really interesting and that we should keep in mind as we think about this relationship between God's law and God's gospel, between the terrifying news of our sin and judgment and the good news that our sins are forgiven. Right? Look back at verse 61 again. You will remember and be ashamed. Now, that's after God has announced that He's going to remember, that He's going to establish this covenant with them. And it's a good reminder for you and I that sometimes it is the forgiveness of God that leads us to realize how awful our sin really is. And in this case, it will take the forgiveness of God to bring Israel to a realization of how much they needed that forgiveness. And He says, your, your sisters, they'll become your daughters. That's... Kind of weird. What does that mean? In other words, what, what the Lord is saying, remember who the sisters are, Sodom and Samaria. In other words, the Lord says, I'm going to give these unbelievers to you as your children. It means that these pagan people or people who are far from God and rebelling against Him are going to go from being far off, having nothing to do with Israel and the covenant, to being inheritors, right? children of the covenant now. Direct descendants, if you will. The picture is that they are now included because they are descendants of the line. That's why, that's why by the way, that's why the Apostle Paul talks so much in Galatians and Romans about how the promises to Abraham were always meant to be the inheritance of the nations. That all who believe in Jesus Christ by the new covenant in His blood are in fact children of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. 
So let's just praise the Lord. (laughs) There's only one people of God. There has ever, always, only been one people of God who will be with Him forever. And it is those who trust in the promises of Jesus Christ, in the crucified and risen Son of God, who are in communion and in fellowship with God Almighty. And so God remembers when we do not. That's a great encouragement and comfort to you. And when God reveals what we have forgotten, we do remember. That's, that's this, this new covenant that, again, this, this promise that, that almost, up until every, uh, almost every time up until now, when the Lord had said, has said, and you shall know that I am the Lord, it's almost been a kind of threat. But, but now when we see it in this new covenant context, it is very good news. I'm going to take away your spiritual forgetfulness and you will know that I am the Lord. That you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone, atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. That's our third point, that God redeems by Himself. God redeems by Himself. He needs no other help. When I atone for you and all that you have done, declares the Lord. What has it taken to know the Lord? For Israel, they've had to see the horror of their sin. And again, forgetting doesn't mean mental lapse. It means when we forget, we live as though we don't know what God has said about Himself and about us. And so we forget. We forget that God judges sinners. That's what gives us license to sin. And we forget that He rescues them. And and many men and women today reject what God has said in His Word, reject what God has revealed, reject what God has commanded, reject the cross even. Why? Because they've forgotten that God judges sinners. They've forgotten that they, they don't believe it. Or we forget that God rescues. I want to add that. What do I mean by that? I mean there are plenty of times in the Christian life where we forget that God rescues us from our sin and keeps forgiving our sin. How do I know that? Because we hide. We hide from God and we hide from each other. Rather than admit our failures, admit our problems, admit addiction, admit sin, we hide. Why? Well, because we don't actually believe that God rescues Or we forget both things, that God judges and that God rescues. And an example of that I have from earlier, and that's gossip, right? When you, when you gossip, you forget those two things about God, that He judges and that He rescues. Because gossip is when we confess the sins of other people when we cannot help them so that we can feel better about them because we don't believe God will judge us. And we talk about them but we refuse to actually confront them and help them because we don't believe God rescues. Only when we are rescued then, it is often only when we are rescued, do we see the depth of our sin. (laughs) What is that moment like? Well, one of the characteristic elements of the moment when God reveals sinfulness to you is you shut your mouth. Right? That is, you, you stop making excuses. That's a great way to determine whether or not repentance has happened in your heart. Are you still making excuses for your sin or are you just owning it? 
Because he says, look at verse uh, 63, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. You will be confounded. You will be silenced. And you will hate who you were. The person who you used to say, oh, I'm fine, it's fine, everything's okay. You know, in, in the time to come, you'll look back and say, I was such an idiot. A person who's had to walk through addiction and being confronted with their addiction knows this. That they look back on the person they used to be and they despise that person. Really, I, I think we're honest, even if you're just like in your early 20s or older, you know what this is like. Right? I think everybody hates the person they were five to ten years ago, right? If, if, I mean, if your answer is yes, that's pretty healthy. To look back on who you used to be and just be like, wow, if I met that person today, I'm not sure I'd want to be their friend. And for many of us, our great shame is that we, 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 we treat God at a, at a distance. We handle God at a distance. That is, a lot, a lot of people find God interesting and think that's the same as worship or the same as being a Christian. That because God is the object of your study, that that makes you a, a Christian. That, but really it is that your study makes you feel really spiritual and really intelligent so it makes God your servant and makes you better than your neighbors because you're smarter than them. Right? This is re- it's really a danger, really a temptation for you and I to just pump our heads so full of knowledge stuff. Why? Because we, we desperately need to feel better than others. It's a, it's a real temptation and a real insecurity. And so what is our hope? Our hope is that God reveals it to us when we cry out to Him. Search me, O Lord, and know me. See if there be any wicked way within me. And when we gather at this table and that bread is broken, and I announce the promise of Jesus to you, right? This is my body broken for you. What that means is not just not just uh, done for you. It does mean that. But, but it also means broken be, by your sins. Your sins are the thing that broke Him. Okay? And so that's when we come to the table, we are saying, He's broken for my sins. And I need to come and remember that. That it's my sins for which He bled. Right? It's, it's my sins that are forgiven by the blood of the new covenant. Israel's sin and failure, which, by the way, was very public, very shameful. They were the object of mockery from all the other nations. And God uses that to do what? He uses that to bring in and to save the nations. To this day, many unbelievers want to excuse their unbelief, uh, maybe even their despising of the Scriptures, by saying the church is full of hypocrites. And so it is. This text, this entire chapter, tells us, God's people, that our God is not mocked. And so He calls His own people to repentance and demands that they know Him and not forget that He takes their sin very seriously. Takes their shame very seriously. And if they do not take it seriously, 
they reveal that they are not His people. My encouragement to you is that if you are far from the Lord, or far even from His people, I will simply offer, how long will you believe that their sins will excuse yours? Or that whatever excuse you have will hold? God calls you in with His promise of welcome. God Himself, by the blood of the new covenant. What this is in Ezekiel is a promise of Jesus. It's this promise pointing to Jesus that basically says, after failure upon failure upon failure, I will make a new covenant with you such that your heart will always be returning to me. Springs of living water, Jesus said, will overflow within us so that we, we keep needing to go back again and again for a drink and so that we don't forget. God Himself welcomes you in by the blood of the new covenant in Jesus and atones for all of your sins for one reason at the front of it all. That you may know the Lord. So He calls you in to know you and to be known by you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess how forgetful we are that when we read about Israel, we see ourselves. And so we should, because we're your people. We continue in that line as people under your new covenant of people who continue to, to Israel in Hebrew, to wrestle with God. And so, Lord, as we wrestle, we, we ask that you would, you would win. You would be victorious for us victorious over our sin. Please, Lord, help us to feel an appropriate amount of shame for our sin, an appropriate amount, that we would not be driven to despair, that we would not slip into pride, but rather that we would come again and again to the cross of our Savior Jesus, and not by our own, not even by the, own, but by the, by the strength of our own repentance, which is often so weak and feeble, but by the one in whom we have faith, by His strength and by the blood of the Lamb alone. So we are rescued and saved. For your sake. In Jesus' name. Amen.